listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. This is episode number 38 of the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. And in today's episode, we get to hear from Dr. John Dixon, Australian speaker, author, historian, and public advocate for the Christian faith. We cover John's childhood, including tragically losing his dad at an early age, John's journey to faith, his music career, becoming an author, and how and why he came to found the Centre for Public Christianity. John speaks about being immersed in the modern and ancient worlds and gives some really interesting perspectives on his journey and on the environment that modern Western Christians find themselves in today. If you enjoy this episode, I'd love for you to share it on social media or simply send the link to someone else you think may enjoy it. Don't forget you can rate, review, follow, like and share the podcast through iTunes and SoundCloud and you can also send through an email if you have any questions or any suggestions as to some interviews you'd like to hear. And now I'm really happy to present you with this conversation with Dr. John Dixon. Well, I grew up in Sydney, yeah. uh, not far from here, down in Mossman, which uh, in, in those days was not as posh as it's become. Right. Uh, we weren't a rich family, but we lived in one of the most beautiful places in Sydney, right near Balmoral Beach. And uh, I have such special memories of my Mossman days. And I lived there till I was about 21. So it's a big, you know, big part of my life. And I moved all the way to Roseville. <laughs> Six kilometers away or whatever it nice. is. <laughs> and so you spoke that you've got really special memories. What are some of your early memories there? Swimming in the Balmoral Bath. So I took a, an American friend who's staying with me at the moment down to Balmoral just to show him where I grew up and all that sort of thing. And the baths that aren't much to look at now, Saturday mornings were full on hundreds of local residents would take their kids for swimming races. So that's a, the bars actually has a 50 meter, proper 50 meter pool. It's not much to look at now, but a sea, you know, ocean pool. And every Saturday morning for about three hours, we were always down at Balmoral Beach racing. So it was very much a swimming culture growing up. And I went to Mossman High School and during the summer months, every day after school, We'd wander down to Balmoral Beach and, you know, buy fish and chips and, you know, swim. And, yeah, they're very powerful memories. And there's also a cave that they've fully excavated, the archaeologists have fully excavated, that shows that Aboriginal families lived in this cave right on Balmoral Beach for at least 3,000 years. Wow. And so I like to take visitors there, and I went there just the other day, um, to just imagine our Indigenous uh, forebears uh, living in this beautiful place that now is kind of Poshville, but for them it was just beauty and fish and kangaroos and, you know, and th- th- there's apparently a early criticism of the Mossman Aborigines in the very early settlement in Sydney for only working three to four hours a day. So, of course, you know, Europeans have this work ethic. You've got to work eight to ten hours a day. And the Aborigines of Mossman, because because it was so plentiful with fish, uh, they would just hunt for three hours and then just, you know, party and relax and sing. And But the Europeans didn't like that. Anyway, I'm going off track already. But for me, that's also powerful because, you know, for a long time I've just – I felt the poignancy of what happened to Indigenous people in Sydney. Mm. And in Mossman, there's a very powerful reminder of the wealth of European settlers that is really at the expense of people 
who were there for 3,000 years. So for you in your journey, like, do you have a first or early memory of any kind of spirituality or religion or of God? When I was nine, um, my father died in a plane crash, a big passenger airliner. Wow. Um, that was in all the news and so on. When the news came to our house, my mum was already dreading it because she'd heard on the ABC news in the middle of the day that a plane had gone down in India. And she thought, oh, is that Bill's plane? No, he's not meant to be on that plane, but it'd be just like him to get on the earlier flight. Maybe it is. And so when she got the call at about 7 p.m. to say that, you know, he was on the plane and he was gone, you know, that was a very powerful, I mean, in itself, it wasn't spiritual because ours was not a religious household. I'd never been inside a church. I'd never been to Sunday school. We never said grace around the table for a meal. But three days later, after dad was gone, apparently, I only know this because my mum told me years later, apparently I went up to her as this nine-year-old boy and asked, why did God let dad's plane crash? She, you know, didn't know what to say. She wasn't religious. You know, she just sort of let it pass. But I guess, you know, here I was, a nine-year-old boy with no uh, formal religion who still knew the right question to ask. God's meant to be in control of this. Why did he let it happen? So I guess for me, my spiritual hunches go back a long way. Mm. Um, And I think I probably was a pensive kid you know, perhaps from losing dad. It just put me in my head a lot. Yeah. I do remember being a very heady kid. You know, I mean, I love my sport and I love my martial arts and I did lots of, you know, that's, you know, swimming and all that. But I also remember thinking a lot and missing dad. Um, my thoughts turning to Christianity and the, the earliest, like, real spiritual memory is a um, babysitter who uh, lived up the road from us in Mossman and came, you know, looked after our family a lot after Dad's death. And she was beautiful. And she was kind of, I, I wouldn't have known to, to call her Christian, but I knew she was, like, on the God side. <laughs> and she gave me stickers. And I can remember looking at these stickers that I stuck on my bed uh, post and it was love is eternal there were three stickers love is eternal and i didn't know what it meant Mm -hmm. i certainly didn't know it came from 1 corinthians 13 that famous you know love passage yeah but i do remember sort of being a little bit fixated on it love is eternal what does that mean and i would also say the lord's prayer as a maybe 10, 11, 12-year-old, old style, our father who, you know, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I can't have known what it meant, who art in heaven. Like, what's God doing art in heaven for, right? It makes no sense. But I used to say it. And years later, when I, you know, actually embraced Christianity for myself as a 16-year-old, I always thought it was miraculous that I knew the Lord's Prayer because I'd never been in church or Sunday school or anything. And that little bubble was burst one day uh, because years later, I was an assistant minister in the Mossman Church, as it turns out, the um, Anglican Church there. And I mentioned in a sermon that when I was a kid, before I was a Christian, I knew the Lord's Prayer. How amazing is that? But afterwards, this elderly woman came up to me who was my babysitter 
from those years before. Oh, wow. And she said, John, I taught you the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't miraculous. <laughs> I taught you the Lord's Prayer when you were 10. And I went, oh, my goodness. Because I don't remember her teaching me this, but I'm so thankful yeah. for this faithful babysitter who just did the little that she could do to give this thoughtful kid something bigger than himself to hang on to. And, I, I, you know, I think I probably prayed that Lord's Prayer most nights from when I was 10 to when I was a Christian. And, of course, now I still say it every single day in the old style. <laughs> I do. <laughs> My wife and I say the Lord's Prayer in oh. old language. I don't know why it's, you know, I now know what art means. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with creative <laughs> drawing. <laughs> That's so funny. And so, like, you had this tragedy happen as a kid, which you said made you quite pensive. How was family life and how was school for you growing up? School was great so long as we don't think about the education and the homework. Okay. School was great for friends. So you were not academic? I as was a not kid. academic at all. Wow. No. I mean, because you have to do work to be academic. It's true. And uh, I just didn't do work. You know, the only subject I ever really excelled in, and it was only for one term, was biology in year 10. I was a brand new Christian. And my biology teacher said to the class, hands up if you're one of those who believes God made the world. <laughs> and I've sheepishly put my hand up. Okay. And she said, I'm sick of Christians doing really badly in biology just because you think, you know, God, the fairy in the sky made everything. You think you don't have to think about science. Okay. And I sat there going, I'll prove you wrong, woman. <laughs> and I topped the year wow. <laughs> in biology. Um, and that was it. Everything else was um, average uh, other than the one time I decided to prove to this teacher. Wow, that motivated you. <laughs> it did. That's crazy. And, and you know, frankly... That's what kids need. They're going to need to be motivated. I was not motivated. Mm. I loved martial arts, soccer, the beach, bike riding, my mates. Mm. And school was just an excuse to hang out with mates for six hours a day before we got on to all those other things. Yeah. Did you have an idea of your future, like what you wanted to be? No, no. no. Um, you know, for a while I thought I'd play soccer for Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I laugh because you know I was I was not great. I mean, <laughs> I mean I was I was pretty good uh, for my school, yeah. but I was never going to be playing um, okay. state <laughs> soccer, let alone national soccer. Yeah. Uh, but you know that was one of those one of those dreams. But no, I had no idea. Mm. Um, yeah, so long as I had my mates, I was fine. Mm. I didn't really forecast very much. Um, but it's interesting. A number of my mates also came from homes that you know were fraught so two of my best friends had very sad situations in their parents as well and so maybe there was a sense in which we were band of brothers yeah and bandied together and you know, took care of each other and found in each other the stuff that we missed um from from not having you know um both parents around yeah and that said, my my mum, you know, was a trooper and you know raised three boys on her own mm. after dad's death, so she did a marvelous job. But I was I was a little bit wild in those days. I ran away from home a few times. I was in trouble with the cops a bit, to the point where my mum took me to a uh, a bad boys home. 
Oh, really? Because I'd gone through counselling, you know, and the counsellor who thought um, I was suffering emotional scarring from losing dad. Mm. And then they took me to another one else and they thought I was hyperactive and, you know, so they tried to find it. And looking back, I think I was just a selfish jerk. (laughs) Um, There was nothing deeper than that. But my mum took me to a a bad boy's school and I was going to go to a home for kids that were uncontrollable. But she took me to the interview and in this big old sort of orphanagey place here in Sydney, she saw some of the other teenagers who were effing this and effing that. And she said, I'm not letting John go to where he's going to pick up swearing. Because <laughs> the one thing I didn't have was swearing. Okay. <laughs> so I never went to the bad boy school. Wow. Um, and mum just, you know, she just put up with it. Incredibly patient. Mm. And in year nine, end of year nine, is when I really began to think about Christianity. Mm. And it, it sort of captured me. So tell us about that. What did that look like? Well, you know, they, they have these scripture lessons in state schools in New South Wales. Half yeah. an hour when a volunteer comes up to the school and teaches a religion. It could be Judaism from the local synagogues. could be Hinduism from the local temple. Uh, well, I went to the Christian classes and we got this woman Mrs. Glenda Weldon, who was smart and funny and had answers to all my smart aleck questions. And I was the kid in class, always trying to make the scripture teacher look like an idiot. And it worked (laughs) mostly, but not with this teacher, this year nine teacher. She had a way of answering that was, you know, simultaneously smart and funny. And not quite at my expense, but pretty close to my expense. And I remember (laughs) asking her a couple of questions, like trying my usual tactic. And her answers, you know, made the class laugh. And, I've, and I thought, oh, I, I better not, I better not try this anymore. I, I'm going to lose some credibility. Right. <laughs> the, the scripture teacher is going to outdo me. Wow. And I remember going up to her after class. I mean, I must have had a couple of months of her teaching once a week. And I went up to her after class, made sure none of my friends, you know, were watching me talking to the religious woman because I didn't want them to think I was going to catch it or anything. Uh-huh. And I said to her, what do you think God thinks of me? And she said, John, he can see everything you've done, said, and thought. And she left this really awkward pause just to let that sink in. And I remember thinking, oh, no, that, that wouldn't be good. And then she said, but he loves you even still. Wow. I thanked her for the comment. I raced out into the playground to kind of forget about it. But this pensive thing that's always been in my life kicked in. And, I, and those words went round and round in my head. He knows everything I've done, said, and thought. And he loves me even still. So when a few weeks later, she invited the class to her home for hamburgers, milkshakes and scones (laughs) and further discussion, something, of course, you would never do now Mm. uh, in in this day and age. You'd never invite kids from school back to your home. But anyway, she did. And we thought we'd go for the food, put up with the God bit. (laughs) We went to her home. Um, Sometimes we went just four or five of us. Sometimes we took 20 people from our school down to her home and she would make hamburgers milkshakes and scones on friday afternoon and then say have you got any questions she was never pushy she never like urged us urged us to be christian Mm. but she said "Have you got questions she answered our questions she read to us the four gospels matthew mark luke and john the biographies of jesus and i i don't know exactly how or when it happened but i do remember thinking of myself as a real fan of jesus you know, I was a fan of U2, mm. the rock band, <laughs> and Jesus. <laughs> like, wow. It somehow morphed. I, I just thought this man in the Gospels 
is the most extraordinary example of power and humility in mm. one. Yeah. Something you don't see. We all know of great, powerful leaders you might learn about in history. We all know of, you know, little humble people, but rarely do you see it in the one person. And I, I think that the story of Jesus, you know, Jesus can be frightening in his authority and people would come and fall at their knees before him and he would outdo everyone in debate. And so there's this sense in which he's frightening and yet he was tender to the most outcast person the people that you might have thought were first in line for judgment, the so-called sinners of the day. He would invite himself to their home for meals. And it just all began to click for me. And long before I would call myself a Christian, I probably was a Christian. It was hard for me to call myself a Christian because I'd sort of lived a life, you know, as a classic Aussie teenager where Christian wasn't cool. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would not say I was a Christian out loud, but I, I was. And I would defend Jesus whenever anyone would, would say something. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but, you know, eventually I got to the point, I guess I was 16, where I said, hang on, I think I probably am a Christian. Yeah. That's wild. And, but it was, it was through encountering the person of Christ in those Gospels. That was it. And I've been captivated ever since. And I've realized, you know, all these years later that those you know, beautiful stories in the Gospels actually can handle your deepest questions. They are far more academic and intellectual documents than I ever imagined. You know, you can read them just as, a, you know, as the story of Jesus and be wowed by them as I was at 16, but you can also do a PhD in them and still feel like you're scratching the surface. Wow. So, you know, my mates and I, these, these mates who were my best mates for years, they also embraced Christianity. And we decided that we would try and communicate that to people, to lots of people. So we started a band. Mm. And um, we thought we'd came up, you know, with the idea of Christian music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'd never heard of Christian music. Yeah. You know, our bands were U2 and Simple Minds and Big Country and, uh, you know, stuff like that. But we thought, let's start a band. Let's write songs that just sound like normal songs but if you listen to the lyrics closely they do point you towards something higher and the band took off and so we you know we did our hscs we only just scraped through our hsc mm -hmm. um, like literally actually one of the guitarists didn't even pass the hsc oh. um, i just passed the hsc this is back when you could get a mark out of 500 right, right? and i just got over okay. <laughs> halfway <laughs> but i wasn't interested in studies and uh, but the band took off and within a year of um of our HSC, we were full-time. And so for the next six years, I got to tour the world with my best friends playing music and wow. sharing our faith between songs in pubs and clubs and schools and prisons and unis, and it was great. Amazing. Mm. That's incredible. So how did you sort of transition from that life into quite an academic path? <laughs> how did I become a nerd, right? That's what you're asking? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I always knew I wasn't dumb. But I didn't think I could ever be academic. But something happened in the band days. We would um, sing and I, in particular, would speak. I mean, a couple of the other guys would also speak. But I did the most, most of the speaking. And I would be speaking about Christianity to thousands of people every week. We'd be going to new towns all around Australia and a little bit overseas. And I'd have this opportunity, you know, in front of crowds to 
give a three or four minute talk about my faith as I introduced a song. Mm. And I would just try and get away with as much as I could. Like if it was going really well, I'd just keep on talking. And sometimes I would do 10 minute song introductions that everyone was listening to. And I thought, wow, this is this, this could be a thing, right? Speaking to people about the faith. But it got to the point where I realized I was telling the same funny stories, using the same illustrations, exactly the same thing from town to town to town to town to town, to town with no depth. Mm-hmm. And it worried me that I would be forever really shallow. You know, at one level impressive because you're in a band and, you know, you can tell funny stories or whatever, but shallow in that I didn't know the New Testament that well, didn't know philosophy or history or anything. And yet here I was talking to so many people. It just felt wrong to to have a shallow presentation of the Christian faith. So we decided as a band to disband. And four of us went... And we asked people, what's the nerdiest theological college in Australia? Like, if you're (laughs) going to do it properly, which is the one that you should go to? And they all said, it's this place called Moore College. I'd never heard of it. But everyone everyone said, you know, and even non-Anglicans said, that's that's the one if you want to be a real nerdy Bible guy. Mm. So we went there. Was that a hard transition from music life? Oh, man. Oh, man. (laughs) I reckon my first two years at college and any lecturer of Moore College who, who, who was there in those days would attest to this. I was so distracted. I was, you know, I'd nick off Friday afternoons um, as early as I could from class to go spend the weekend still playing music and stuff. So the guitarist and I still did gigs together. We did a couple of albums together after the band days. So I would just try and find all of my life outside of Monday to Friday. Mm. So I'd go, and, and it was it was really difficult, you know? So I was touring the world with my best friends, and then suddenly I'm learning ancient Greek. Yeah. But I did really well. The first essay I handed in, um, I was so nervous, because my friend, Angus, and I were the only ones out of 90 people in our first year more college who didn't have a degree already. They all had degrees. So we were really nervous. Anyway, I did screamingly well. And then the next essay, same. I was going, oh. Maybe I'm, maybe I can do this. And I kept, you know, all through college, I did really well. And, you know, I graduated and was encouraged to do advanced study. And, you know, I went on from there to really take the sort of ancient history side very seriously. After more college, I went to Macquarie University, which is wonderful ancient history department there, and did a genuine ancient history doctorate doctoral thesis on the origins of Christianity in the Greek and Roman world. So it's still to do with Christianity, but it wasn't theology and you couldn't treat the Bible as the word of God. It was just a historical document, but that sort of uh, was my life for the years after that. I transitioned to academics simply because I was worried about being shallow and Mm. I thought being shallow for Jesus isn't good. Wow. Do you think that for everybody that looks like formal studies or... Is that not mm, something Good new? question. I think not necessarily. Uh-huh. I detected this shallowness a couple of years before we disbanded. And I think what it was is we were asked to play gigs where guest Christian preachers were brought in. So we were like the bait. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and the, then the preacher would, would come on. So we do, did a few of those with like, you know, sort of famous Christian speakers. But then we would do the same thing in another town with the same speaker. And we'd go on little tours with them. And I think it was there that I realized, actually, you can be really impressive Christianly 
and just be telling the same one 30-minute talk in every new town. Yeah. And I was worried that um, that would happen to us. In fact, it probably already was us. So we decided, at least three of us in the band, Angus, Ben and I, to get as many books as we possibly could. So we would ask people, what are the books that you've got to read? So we knew nothing. Mm-hmm. What are the books we've got to read? And, um, and we, we, you know, we had some really good advice in, in those days of books that we should read. So we went to Kurong Books, you know, the famous book chain here, and bless them. I mean, we, we were pretty well known as a band. So we, we went to them and said, look, we're on the road full time. You know, we would love to read books. Well, Kurong Books, Paul Boots was the boss in those days, um, gave our band free books, oh, whatever cool. we wanted books. Yeah. To the point where in our big truck that we toured with, with, with all our sound gear in it, one huge road case, I mean, you know, maybe two metres by one metre rectangle road case full of books that we took on the road everywhere with us. And we just read them. And this is a long-winded way of answering your question. We were already trying to repair the shallowness just mm. by good reading. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time in cars between, you know, here and Adelaide, 14 hours. And I didn't get sick when I read. So I would just sit in the car when it was, you know, my turn not to drive. And I would just read for hours and hours and hours. And so would the other guys. So I don't think you have to have formal study. Okay. But there's so much good information out there. Yeah. There's, there's no excuse for a Western Christian to be shallow. Mm. There you go. Let me be controversial for a Good. second. <laughs> and so you yourself became an author in 93, I think it was. Mm. You've written a lot of books since. Yes. And that was almost accidental. And my English teacher would be stunned that I <laughs> put a sentence together, let alone a book. But those first couple of books were really just material that I'd prepared in the band because we had to spend one day a week replying our mail. We got so mm. much mail as a band. We got, you know, fan mail that never came to me. It came to the guitarist. All this kind of, <laughs> we love you, Ben. <laughs> I got stuff like that song you sang that you introduced and you mentioned, you know, the creator's love. How can that possibly be when, you know, my, my parents are really horrible to me and every Christian I've met is a hypocrite. We get le- I get letters like that. Wow. <clears throat> we have to spend a day, a week just replying our mail. And... Sure. It got to the point where I thought there, should, there ought to be a book that mm. we can just send them because they're, you know, hundreds and hundreds of letters we got, but they're all the same kinds of questions. And so I decided I'd write the book because I couldn't find one that I could just send someone who's investigating Christianity or a brand new Christian, you know, questions of sex, questions of the fashion industry, questions of science, questions of suffering. Wow. And so I wrote this book called Hanging In There, mm-hmm. my first book. I, I describe as the... 12 best letters I've ever written. And that's pretty much what they were. They were just the kinds of things I I was writing to people about. And then my second book, A Sneaking Suspicion, was just the talks I was giving all around Australia with the band in in schools and unis and so on. And I just put them in a book. Quite a number of publishers uh, rejected me on the first um, round. But this little publisher at the time called Matthias Media uh, read it and thought, actually, He's, he's a pretty bad writer, but we can help him with that. The, the information's pretty cool. And so they took my first, wow, eight books or something. Wow. But, but they took a chance on me on the first book, Hanging In There, mm. and really turned it into something you know much better than I could have written. 
and I learned to write because they were such good editors. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> right? I'd hand in, you know, one thing, I'd get it back as another thing, and I went, oh, I can see why they changed that <laughs> sentence. I think I could do that. And eventually, you know. So Matthias Media taught me to write. Mm, amazing. And was it the same sort of motivation that led you to start Center for Public Christianity? Exactly. I've often thought I've really only been doing one thing since I was 16. Mm. It looks like a bunch of different things. It looks like music. It looks like being an author. It looks like being an academic and then Center for Public Christianity and being a minister in a local church. For me, it is all about making Christ public. Yeah. What my scripture teacher, Glenda Weldon, did for me, walking into a class of kids that were pretty rotten at points, she was making Christ public and I caught that bug. And I've just always been trying to invent ways to make Christ more public because there's no doubt, you know, our, the biographies we have of him, it's all about him being public. He's in the public. He's out on the hills of Galilee, out on the roads, finding opportunities to make this more public. And I think that's what I've always done, whether music or academics or the Center for Public Christianity really kind of captures that, the title Center for Public Christianity, yeah. you know, is that's my life's direction from 16 to today. I just think there are so many misconceptions about Christianity. Mm. Um, the criticisms of Christianity are nowhere near as smart and solid as a lot of atheists think. And though some of the reputation of the church is deserved, absolutely, church sure. has done terrible things. Yeah, There's a lot of misconceptions even still. And I just want to be part of the conversation that says, hey, take a second look, because there's something beautiful and true here, despite all the mess around it. You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast, episode number 38 with Dr. John Dixon. You can listen to other episodes in the Sparrows and Wildflowers series on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Like my conversation with Jessica Yon, Muay Thai fighter and TV producer, in episode 32. I think for me, in the very beginning, fighting was to prove a point. Mm-hmm. I think it was to prove to my ex that I could do it because he didn't think I could. And just it was built from a lot of pain. You know, I would go to training and I would like train really hard and I'd spar and I would get like beat and sparring like pretty bad. And I'd go in my car and I'd cry the whole way home. I think for me, like that's just symbolism that there was like a lot of pain inside of me. So I put myself through it because it was like a way I could release pain. But as I did it more and more and you know, like um, my heart started to change, I realized actually that something that I was once a victim of, I now can help other people that are victims, like a voice for women who don't have a voice. So I did a lot of like self-defense things and I started a connect group for a while where I taught self-defense to women that came to it. And I just was able to like support people. And you know, it's to me, it's like a Joseph story. It's like when you were once sent into exile, but then you know, like you come out of it and what was once your curse is now your blessing. So for me, maybe it didn't start the right way, but for me, I honestly believe that that pain is now just me being able to give to people. And that's a part of my faith. That was an excerpt from my conversation with Jessica Yon in episode 32. 
And now back to this episode with Dr. John Dixon. And like as an observer of you in the public eye, I think it's really interesting because um, you're commenting on current social issues, you're very involved in social media, so really immersed in the modern world. But then as you spoke about, you're an academic of ancient history and a biblical scholar. Like, how do you view that and how does that work for you being so immersed in the modern and the ancient worlds? I love it. I mean, in some ways, the ancient world is just uh, another place. It's like traveling to China. Yeah. (laughs) Right? It's a real living place. Mm -hmm. And it was as tangible as anything is today. It seems like it might as well be on another planet to us who don't, you know, if you don't study history, saying something happened in the first century just seems like implausible. What, there was a first century? (laughs) You know? Um, But, you know, the more we know about that period, the more they were just real human beings who were brilliant at things and disgusting at things. They are just like us. Mm. And there are aspects of ancient culture that are far more advanced than modern culture. And this is one of the things one of the most sort of revealing things about really coming to understand the ancient world is I don't believe in an evolutionary view of social history where everything's just getting better. Some things are getting better. Medicine, science, technology. Yes, absolutely. But is friendship getting better? Is meaning getting better? Is IQ getting better? I doubt it very much. I read some of the ancient you know, the most brilliant ancient writers, uh, whether, you know, we're talking Seneca or Plutarch or back to Aristotle and Plato, they are as deep and smart as the deepest and smartest things you'll ever read today. So I've come to deeply respect the first century. For me, it's just around the corner here. It's not a foreign planet. It's it's just around the corner here. And the reason I wear a 2,000-year-old Roman denarius is... Partly a reminder, you know, it's one of these coins that Jesus held when he said, whose image is on here, when he's asked, you know, should we pay taxes? Mm. And they say, Caesar's image. And he says, well, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. It was this, not this very coin necessarily, (laughs) um, but this Roman denarius uh, with Tiberius's image on it. But I have this around my neck as a kind of reminder that the world in which Jesus lived was as solid as this thing that's in my hands here. Yeah, right. This is real. And mm. although we can't now talk to people from the first century, they have left remains that speak just as loudly as if we were. So for me, there is no contradiction between loving modern media and loving the ancient world. It's just another time and place. So interesting. And I'd love to hear your comment on the environment that Christians find themselves in in the modern Western world, because I think you hear varying views. I mean, one of your books was banned, I believe, from schools for a time. Yeah, you hear opinions that, you know, there's a lot of persecution, there's a lot of stifling of views, but then in another way, like it seems so much better and freer than it has been historically. What's your view on that as someone who is out there talking about the church, sharing their faith, commenting on issues? There's no doubt it's getting harder to be public about your Christian faith because there are some very vocal and intelligent and media savvy opponents of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. 
and they fill the bestseller lists. And so the more people embrace that stuff, the harder it is for Christians to you know, stick their head uh, above the parapet. Um, so I don't want to deny that that feeling that a lot of Christians have, that things are kind of turning against them a little bit in the West, it is real. It's real. It's real. But there's no reason to panic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, theologically, there's no reason to panic because God's in control. I'm totally cool with that. You can be calm. The more confident you are in Christ, the more relaxed you can be when things seem to be going bad. It's the insecure Christian that lashes out and panics. The really secure Christian can just sort of go, look, it's sad that you know people are sort of turning against Christianity, but there's no reason to panic. It'll probably offer new opportunities. And I'm a great believer in actually Christianity does much better, it seems to me, on the margins, not in the center. See, yeah. when Christianity is in the center of the conversation, calling the shots, determining public policy, it's so aligned with power. How do you convey the center of the Christian gospel from a position of power when that gospel is about God entering the world humbly in a human being, loving people, getting beaten up, tortured, crucified, and being raised to life? How do I proclaim that or embody that when I'm in power? It just seems incongruous. I mean, I think it's possible to do. There are powerful people who can have humility because they're shaped by that Christian message. But it seems to me that from the very beginning of Christianity and in many parts of the world today, like China and the Middle East, Christians can be more authentically Christian when they don't have power, when they really can display to people that it's possible to love your enemies, it's possible to profoundly love and respect people you disagree with, and this is... This is a thing that's dying in our entire culture, it seems to me, the ability to profoundly disagree and get along at the same time. Mm. Um, and I think Christianity ha has, it, has resources within itself to make that an art form because we're the people who believe that God loves us despite ourselves. He doesn't love us because we're really cool. doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us through and through, regardless of how we've failed. Mm. And Christians ought to be those kinds of people in society. They shouldn't be shouting down opponents. They shouldn't fret when they lose power. They shouldn't fret when they lose legislative and cultural influence because we can still convey Christ's love with very little clout. The art of losing well ought to be recovered because Christians have been brilliant at losing. <laughs> um, and when Christians lose well, it, it somehow is a great picture of the gospel. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. So you're a minister in the Anglican Church. You're also a husband and a dad, obviously a musician, an author, and, and doing everything you do with the Center for Public Christianity. Having achieved so much and walking out your faith, like what would you share with people? What disciplines do you employ, spiritual or otherwise, in your world that allow you to do that? I, I'm never very, very good at the kind of self-reflection of my practices. Yeah. Um, you know, I have been very blessed with doors that open in my life. So mm. the opportunities open up that I didn't really push for. They come along and I and it opens up a whole new 
vista of possibilities, you know, whether it's the writing or the, the, the singing or the you know, acad- academics or whatever. Um, so I don't know how to give anyone advice about that side of things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in terms of the question of disciplines that, that kind of centre me, um, I think I will say the most precious time in my week, every week, is 35 minutes in bed with a cup of tea with my wife and we pray together and we read the Bible and talk about our day Yeah. over a cup of tea that I have made. Ah, <laughs> there's a tip for husbands. <clears throat> um, and so no matter how crazy my week is, if I get to do that, I just feel wonderful. In fact, when I travel, as I do a fair bit, I will still get up, make a cup of tea and sit in bed just as if Buff was next to me and, you know, read the Bible and pray. And, you know, like it's put me in such a a pattern Mm. that um, it's my happy place, you know. And so, you know, this morning I got up and made a cup of tea and we prayed and we, we, we read a portion of the book of Job, which is, you know, confusing and depressing, but also beautiful. And, uh, you know, prayed about the day and, you know, friends that aren't doing well. Mm. That is, for me, the richest little discipline that I have. So good. And then in your journey, has there been a particular, like you can choose Bible passage or Bible figure that's been really significant for you? Well, you can't go past the Gospels. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Those first four books of the New Testament Mm. are the first four books for a reason. They are the foundation of our faith, the life of Jesus. And so his life and teaching, yeah, the Gospels are really special, really special to me. But um, if I were to drill down on a particular passage, it's Romans 8. Yeah. Which is a, a, you know, a marvelous insight into the sadness and frustration of the world, that our world is groaning, the Apostle Paul says. And, and when you read that, and you go, yeah, it's groaning. You know, I- even the person who, who has the best life knows what it means when Paul says the whole creation groans. And yet the, passage, the, the chapter ends, chapter 8 of Romans ends with what shall separate us from the love of God. And, and he ends up concluding that neither height nor depth, neither present nor the future, neither angels nor demons, nor anything else in all creation shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Wow. Um, that is the most beautiful message because if that's true, that despite everything, the one solid thing is God's love, the Creator's love for a puny, sinful human being like me, then I can get up in the morning and face the world. And it's not dependent on how successful I am, how comfortable I am, how many Facebook friends and followers I have, how well I perform. It's just that God loves me. And to find your own identity in that unchangeable reality, I think is the key to life. Wow. And perhaps you've just sort of summed it up there, but I was going to ask you, like, what would you say is at the core of what you believe? It is that despite my frailties and foibles and failures, um, I'm loved by the creator of the universe. So much of our world is performance-driven. We, we think that if we perform well, we're accepted. 
And so much of the world does work like that, right? On yeah. the play, in the playground. I'll be your best buddy if you, you know, do this for me, right? Little kids say that to each other. Or, you know, in the sporting arena, if you perform well, you're promoted. If, if not, you're out. Corporate world, the same. Everywhere. Religion even operates like this. Most religion works like if you perform, then you'll get it. Mm-hmm. And Christianity comes along and says, you know you haven't performed <laughs> very well. And here's the good news. Uh, despite deserving nothing but judgment from God, he loves you and he'll accept you and forgive you and fill you with his spirit and guide you in life. And that is unchangeable. And there's nothing you can do to make him hate you. Mm. He'll keep loving you. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you more, right? That creates such, an, such a self-esteem. I mean, oh, that's a tacky word. Even I hate that idea, but people are chasing <laughs> self-esteem and, you know, pinning it often to popularity and performance. Mm. But, if, but if it's based on the knowledge that God loves you in Christ, then you can endure anything. Do you think that um, some of the modern rejection or resistance to Christianity is related to a lack of feeling um, a sense of need for forgiveness? Yes. Um, I think our culture has so um, criticised guilt yeah. as a negative feeling. And um, it's quite clear that someone like Sigmund Freud, the great father of you know, psychoanalytical tradition, he actually considered guilt to be a really negative emotion that would lock you up. Uh, and so a lot of people run from guilt. And, and his ideas that, that guilt really is just a subjective feeling you need to overcome have entered into our culture, even though people hardly anyone knows of Sigmund Freud anymore, but his views have now become our standard views in the modern 21st century. And so we think um, that all talk of sin and guilt mm. is negative, you know? Yes. It's pulling me down. Yeah. I'm, I can define myself. My identity is my own to create. Um, you know, I'm free. I can do what I like, etc. And so don't talk to me about guilt. The problem is when you remove that concept of guilt, A, you can't really get rid of it because human beings are wired to feel that sense of shame over stuff that they do. We're meant to. If you lie to your best buddy, you're meant to feel bad about it. And you will, because that's you know, just how we're wired. But the other thing is what happens is people um, who try and just define themselves, ignore guilt, think that they can perform and build up popularity and all of this, They, when they begin to try and base their sense of their own importance on themselves, on their own definitions and achievements, because that is so variable, you are setting yourself up for a disaster. Very few people actually can so define themselves and achieve all that they wanted to achieve to the point where they feel satisfied. Very few. Most people don't live up to their own hopes and expectations. Yeah. And so a destined, if their view of themselves is based on their achievement and they don't achieve, they're destined for deep sense of failure and disappointment. And we see this in a culture like ours where anxiety, and depression and suicide are only on the increase. I think that is the end result of that kind of culture. Mm. But what the Christian message says is, look, just own up to the fact that you can't define yourself 
You are a creature made in you know, God's image, in God's world, and own up to the fact you have failed to live up to your own standards that own God's, but you're loved despite that. Don't try and pin your value of yourself on your achievements because they'll be flexible up and down. Yeah. But if you own the guilt and God's love and forgiveness, you instantly have a stability where a day when I fail leaves me feeling no different from a day when I succeed Mm. because I am loved. My performance, my self-identity is not tied up uh, in the way that modern culture tells me to. Incredible. And then just to finish on, what are you hoping for the future? Hmm. I want to make Christ public, <laughs> Rachel. That's all I want to do. Yeah. Um, and I do it, you know, in a local church and I do it through the Centre for Public Christianity. Look, in the short term, we have a documentary that's um, coming out, Lord willing, soon. That's called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Mm. It's shot in 15 or 20 countries. We've interviewed 40 scholars. Um, It's a massive project that deals with all the terrible things in Christian history, like witch trials and crusades and inquisitions, but also the beautiful things that Christianity's brought into the Western world, like charity and hospitals, education, all these things we take for granted now came from the church. So we're we're telling both stories in four episodes, and I'm really looking forward to to it coming out because it it owns up to Christian failure, and that's really important to do in in our culture. And yet it says, hang on, there are these beautiful things where we did get it right, And the thing is, Jesus wrote a beautiful tune, to use that as a metaphor. He wrote a beautiful song, and sometimes Christians have sung it really badly, and sometimes they've sung it really well. But you've got to distinguish between the performance and the composition. Mm. You can't judge a beautiful composition on a bad performance. We all know that. But you've got to judge it on its best performance. And, you know, Christians have done terrible things in history and today, but actually... They've also done some beautiful things. And when they're doing beautiful things, they're singing the tune of Jesus. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.